A few weeks ago, nope, a few years ago, Lisa Miller, who's the religious editor for Newsweek, wrote a very interesting article, an article that I have not read but saw referred to in another article that I was reading. And I was intrigued by the title of this article and also by its premise. She said this about American religion. She said, we are all Hindus now. That's the title of her essay. We're all Hindus now. And her contention there was not that everybody had officially converted in this country where most people are professing Christians, but that most people's functional belief system is a lot more in accord with Hinduism than it is with classic Orthodox Christianity. For one, most people believe that they'll spend eternity in some sort of disembodied state. Disembodied means without a body. Which means that most people don't believe in the resurrection of the body, which is like our main thing. But most Christians don't really believe in that. They believe one bright morning when this life is over, I'll fly away, and that's it. And they'll be like the little feather floating around at the end of Forrest Gump. That's a dumb hope. You do not want to be a feather. Now, the other thing, though, she says is that most people, Christians included, believe that all paths lead to God. Most people believe that all the ways up the mountain, all the different turns and vantage points, they all lead up the mountain to God at the top there. And she said these are the two common beliefs that everyone seems to believe in our country or in a majority do, and these things are Hinduism. But you see, at Christmas, we have something rather remarkable to recalibrate us, to reorient us to what a bunch of people throughout the history of the world have thought was the most true thing to believe. It's that God spoke everything into being. And that this God, despite all of our efforts to make him in our image, has actually made us in his. So we don't get to invent him. He invents us. We don't get to make up what he's like. He gets to make up what we're like. And what the scriptures want to insist and what all these people who got to be there at the time when it was time for God to say, okay, enough's enough. I guess I need to come down. Is they got to see, wait, we get a living picture of what God is like. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. We've got him localized. We've got a picture. And if you get nothing else today, I would urge you to consider this, that one of the main things about the incarnation, which is a Latin way of saying the enfleshment of God, God putting on skin, God leaving, as we sang earlier, the precincts of heaven, and the Creator donning a diaper, living in our world as one of us is that 
God came in order to make himself known. One of the main things about the incarnation is that if you want to know what God is like, you have to look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, you have to look at Jesus. So if you want to know what God is like, you have to look at Jesus. Did I say that already? If you want to know what God's like, you have to look at Jesus. Some people have said if you repeat a thing that people remember it. Sometimes I repeat by accident. But if you want to know what God's like, you have to look at Jesus. And this is what the author of Hebrews says a very similar thing. There's a chorus of agreeing voices about this. And everybody's just as surprised because he doesn't come like anybody expected him to come. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers and through the prophets at many times and in various ways. The author of Hebrews says, you know, God has been communicating. And in fact, you can't really know anybody. You can't know what someone's thinking. That's why most of you wives don't ever know what your husbands are thinking because they do not speak. You can't know what someone is thinking. You can't know what someone is like unless they reveal something about themselves, unless they open up their mouths and let you know something about them. And these people who never volunteered for the job get singled out throughout history and God gives them this really onerous task of speaking for him. They get tipsy with God. And they see things that they can't unsee. And they see things that they have to tell people about God. And it's usually never the kind of thing that anybody's worth listening to. It's not the kind of thing that anybody wants to bother with. And so they're seen as fools and they're easy to ignore. They're just crazy. And so... In the past, God spoke through our forefathers, through these prophets, at many times, in all kinds of ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Because, you know, if you want to know what God's like, you have to look at Jesus. Whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory. And he is the exact representation of his being Sustaining all things by his powerful word. So that's a pretty exalted claim. You're not likely to meet it on the campaign trail of any politician, no matter what they promise. Not many would claim to be the exact representation of God's glory, the radiance of who he is, who sustains everything by his speech. And that's what John says. That this word that the Hebrews would have known well, that in the beginning, God created. God spoke leopards and lions and honey badgers and hills and trees into being. And here in John, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. But this word became flesh. It tabernacled among us, in the same way that God used to, and a certain kind of manifestation of himself in the people of Israel, he would set up tent, and his presence would be there. And he would lead them by his presence. God in a final way. God in a startling way. And God in really an unimpressive way, put on our skin. 
and became one of us. And, God, and John insists, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Because John's trying to make the same point that I am, that if you want to know what God's like, you have to look at Jesus. And see, one of the things about this is that when God decides to make himself known, after apparently the prophets didn't, it didn't work, it didn't take. So at this time, when the times had met their fulfillment, we're told he was born under woman, born under law, that God decided it's time for me to say enough's enough. Things have gotten too bad. I have to come in and recreate the world. Just as I spoke it into being, one time I'm going to come and the word is going to be made flesh and I'm going to call a new world into being, a new community into being. In order to come and make himself known, he takes some of the edge off of his glory. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. This word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, if you're someone who's hung out at all in a church or around the Bible, you'll have heard this whole idea of glory before. And one of the things that would happen, for instance, if you were kind of a leader of God's people, like a dude like Moses, and you got to hang out on top of a mountain with God. When you came down from that mountain, from being with him, you would be shinier than a Fox News anchor woman. You would be more glistening. You would be so radiant that you would burn people's eyeballs out. And so what happened when Moses would be with God and his brilliance... His face would be lit up. People couldn't look, him on, look, him, look at him head on. So they had to wear a veil. And one of the contentions is that nobody can see me and live. The whole idea is that God is something so spectacular and so weighty and so brilliant and magnificent that if little frail dust-like creatures like us were to lay eyes on him, it'd blind us. It undo us. We couldn't stand in his presence. And so God, in order to make himself known, in order to make his intentions known, in order to make himself approachable, he takes the edge off. He takes some of the shininess off. And he comes in a very unimpressive way. A Palestinian little baby. And almost nobody, except for grown men, are afraid of little babies. (laughs) Babies aren't that threatening. Now, they are to certain men, but by and large, a baby is not a threat. And God, we're told, left off his glory and manifested this glory in the very unimpressive person of Jesus. Not much to attract people to him. Not living in a particularly impressive town or in a particularly impressive place. And so by taking the edge off of his glory, he made himself largely ignorable. It's an interesting thing. That when God comes in the flesh, 
so that people might know who he is and might be welcomed into his presence, might be drawn into relationship with him. He runs the risk of being so unimpressive that he's absolutely ignorable. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. I had a professor say, these are the saddest words in the whole Bible. Can you imagine, a, some of you who are new parents, or you think back when you had your first child, and you just are awestruck at this little creature who's destroying your life. And you take them in, and you're just looking at them, and their eyes are following your voice. From an early time, these little bitty creatures who can't even talk, but who can control your universe, they recognize your voice. They are drawn. When they hear you talking, their eyes come towards you. Can you imagine the sadness of having a child that you love so much and the child saying, who are you? What are you doing here? And of course, that's the sadness that John conveys when he said, Jesus called this world into being. He came to a group of, group of people that his father had assembled and had given special privileges to, have been preparing and training and coddling and disciplining and saying, this is what I'm like. Look at our laws. This is what I'm like. Look at what you're supposed to do. This is what I'm like. Look at the sacrifices. This is what I'm like. And when he finally comes, he's not like anybody wanted. He's not like anybody expected. If he's going to be a man, at least he should be like the gladiator. At least he should look like Russell Crowe. The big sword. He shouldn't be somebody that could be ignored, that could be forgotten, that could be not received. And yet, he runs this risk. You realize, I think I've said it before, but it always strikes me in our culture, this is the one time of the year where Jesus gets a lot of public mention and people aren't that freaked out about it. You might hear Lady Gaga and Teo Cruz and Tim McGraw all singing about Jesus on their latest Christmas album. Because he's just a cute little baby. Will Ferrell had it right. Cute little eight pound, four ounce little baby Jesus. That's the Jesus that's easy to sing about and easy to think about because God has run this terrible risk of being marginalized and forgotten and ignorable because he took the edge off his glory because he wanted to make himself known. Because he knew there was a task so big that, that a human had to be endowed with God to live in a human's place. To keep the law where we had failed. To die for God-rejectors. To be rejected by God so that he might raise again and bring many sons and daughters to glory. God runs the risk 
in making himself known of being ignorable. And the question to us this Christmas time, I think, is will we ignore him? He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The question, when God comes, and he doesn't come like we might expect, and if you got to think about how you would like God to be, you might not think of him like Jesus. In fact, everybody in here, whether you're a long-time Christian, whether you're somebody who's just kind of checking this thing out, whether you're somebody who got tricked here this morning, somebody put something in your coffee, and you don't even want to be here, you're not even sure if you believe in God, most people have some kind of idea about God, and they'll say things about Him. I can never believe in a God who allows suffering like that. The God I worship is a God of love. He would never punish someone. The God that I worship, I meet, not in these rural rustic walls, but out in the woods, man. And you see, as good as all that sounds, what you're doing is you're imagining God for yourself. Tim Keller has wisely said, if the God that you think about and worship and have supposedly at the center of your life, if he's not able to tell you anything, if he's not able to correct you, then he's probably just an act of your imagination. You ever think about that? What good is it? How does it correspond to reality if I just think, I would like a God who's very much like a butler, who makes sure that I always have good food to eat, makes sure that everyone thinks very well of me, Make sure I never get sick, make sure I have lots of money, and make sure that I stay this handsome the whole rest of my life. It's a joke, it's a joke. We would like God to be at our service. And so we dream Him up. We think about what we would like Him to be like. But John is insistent, and the author of Hebrews is insistent, and even Jesus is insistent. He says, if you want to know what the Father is like, and you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know what God's like, I make him known. If you want to know what I'm like, you don't get to admit, you don't get to pick, you don't get to invent it. You have to deal with me, says Jesus. I'm what God's like because I am him. And so the question for us is, will we listen to the word that God has spoken in the person of Jesus, or will we ignore? One of the things that counselors will tell you that's very critical in robust marriages is that each partner must let the other partner influence them. In good relationships, this happens in your friendships, whether you're married or not, in friendships, in boss-employee relationships, if you really listen to someone, 
and you let their words come into you and they affect you. They alter your thinking. They alter the way you're feeling. They might even alter the things you're doing. That's how your wife, gentlemen, this is a free counseling tip, will feel loved. Listen to her. Don't go, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are you done? Mm-hmm. No. The opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. It's not listening. But when we listen to somebody, when we fully hear them out, when we take their words and appropriate them as our own, they start to mess with us on the insides. They change the way we think about things. They change what we're hoping for, what we're expecting. We're influenced by them. And if Jesus really is, as he says, the way and the truth and the life, if he really is the bread that comes from heaven that gives life to the world, if he really is the one who gives all the bukus of God's grace that you could ever want, then the question is, will you ignore him? Or will you listen to the word? Will you take him into yourself and say, this is who God is, so I must listen to him. If I need resources, this is where I'll find them. If I need forgiveness, this is where I'll get it. If I need eternal life, he's the eternal life. If I need to know God's favor, if I need to know how God thinks about sinners, he's the one I look to. There is no other place to look. Will you listen to the word that has come in disguise? Will you receive it? Will you let it, him influence you, change you, be everything to you? I close with this and then we'll come to the Lord's table. There is a story in Narnian Tales by C.S. Lewis, The Silver Chair, where Jill, a formerly kind of snarky, so that's not C.S. Lewis's word, uh, competitive, jealous girl. She finds herself, she's there in Narnia, she's crying and crying and crying, and she wakes up to the sound of a stream coming powerfully by her. And she hears this voice, if you're thirsty, you may drink. Anyway, she had seen its lips move, And the voice was not like that of a man's. It was a lion. It was deeper and wilder and stronger than a man's voice. A sort of heavy, golden voice. It didn't make her any less frightened as she looked at this lion than she had been before. But it made her frightened in a new way. And the lion looks at her and says, Are you thirsty? And she says, I'm dying of thirst. I'm dying of thirst. And the lion says, then drink. And she assesses the situation, not being a dumb girl. There's a creek, stream, beautiful, enticing, appealing. She's thirsty. There's a lion. She says, may may I? uh, Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? I would, in fact, like to drink, but please leave. And the lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as just as well 
have asked a whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you, she says, promise not to do anything to me if I come? Have you ever felt that way? Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? He says, I make no promise. She was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had taken a step closer. Uh, Do you eat girls, she said. It's a very relevant question. And he answers her, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. Then I dare not come and drink, she said. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill. Coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. I'm awfully thirsty. And the lion says, and that line that you've heard so many times, there is no other stream. I'm dying of thirst, she says. Maybe I'll go somewhere else because you're freaking me out, man. And he says, there's nowhere else to go. God became flesh that you might receive him. And here's what you receive from him. The favor of God. That you get to earnestly and honestly say, not because of anything you've done, not because of anything that you've earned, you're a child of God by this lion, this terrifying and welcoming lion who gives you water to drink and says, there is no other thirst. If you want to know what God is like, you have to go to Jesus. And I would urge you, this Christmas, will you listen to him? Will you go to him and let him change you from the inside out? All the things that you're expecting to get from your family and all the things you're expecting to get from the wonder of the season, will you expect one blessing after another from this Savior who has come into the world to save sinners that he might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe. This is a good news about Advent. God wants himself known as one we can approach as one who wants to bring many sons and daughters to glory, as one who wants to give us that which will satisfy our thirst. Will you take out your bulletin? We're going to pray. And in a minute, we're going to confess.